Today's scripture reading is taken from St. Luke, chapter 17, verse 1 to 19. Luke 17, 1 to 19. And he said to his disciple, Temptation to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast into the sea, and that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, and turn to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle says to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant prowling or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also will also done all that you have commanded, saying, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them saw, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten clans? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has healed you. This is what's God. What's what? Margaret, thanks for reading scripture for us. And to all of us, a uh, happy new year. Pray that uh, 2021 might be a better year than 2020. Let me pray for us as we come to the Word together. Let's all pray. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that you are faithful. We thank you that you have seen us through a difficult year for many of us. And you've brought us here to beginning of this new year, Father, we pray that as we 
begin this new season, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us. Uh, Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit and cause faith to rise in our hearts that we would trust you. Uh, Father, we pray that we would continue to look not to ourselves, but to look to you and to rest in your character that is unchanging, that is ever faithful, uh, a character that we can rely on. Uh, So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us as we come to your word. We pray that you would speak uh, encouragement and truth into our lives. And, Father, we pray that we would respond to you with hearts made alive by your Spirit, uh, with open hearts, with soft hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a Latin term for 2020. You may have heard of the term before. Uh, It's annus horribilis. Annus horribilis, uh, horrible year. I think that's the term that many have given 2020. So congratulations, we're here. It's the first weekend of 2021 and we've made it. Made it through 2020. I I don't know, if, if you attended the watch night service, it was such an encouraging time for me. I think just hearing stories of people living by faith, trusting in God through a difficult year, many of whom grew in their faith, I think through trials in 2020. And God has brought us here as as we continue in His Word. We're still in the Gospel of Luke. I pray that we will continue to grow in faith as well as we respond to Him this coming year. Now, this is the start of a new year. And it is an opportune time for us, individually as well as as a church, to take stock, to consider how God is calling us to live in this new year. How is He calling you to live? How is He calling you to respond to Him this year? Very simply, God wants us to trust Him. God wants us to live by faith in Him. So we're going to spend uh, this month in January just thinking about what does it mean for us to live by faith in our God? What does that look like? We are in the Gospel of Luke. This series has been ongoing for quite a while now, and we're going to wrap up the series in Easter. But in the month of January, we we have a series within a series. So we have a mini-series on two chapters in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17 and chapter 18 four sermons, just focusing on what does it mean for us to live by faith. And I pray that as we go through these chapters in Luke's Gospel, God will equip our hearts to respond to Him with trust as we prepare ourselves, as we take a deep breath before the plunge into the new year, that is 2021. Last week we heard from uh, Jonathan who paved the way for us. He exhorted us from Luke 16 concerning our need to turn away from unbelief and to turn in faith to Jesus. So here today we are in Luke 17, and we're going to look at the first 19 verses. And for those of us who are a bit new to this series, we are rejoining Jesus on His journey to Jerusalem. So that journey began in Luke chapter 9, and the journey is coming to an end soon. It will wrap up in Luke chapter 19. So spoiler alert, Jesus is going to die. So the his journey to Jerusalem will culminate in his death and resurrection. So our series, as I mentioned in Luke's Gospel, will take us through to Good Friday and Easter. And as as Jesus makes this journey along the way, he invites us to follow him, to follow him on this journey 
And as we follow him along the way, he teaches us how to live as his disciples. What does it mean to follow him? And if you look at our very first verse in chapter 17, notice how it starts with, and he said to his disciples. So, so this section in Luke's gospel in particular, 17.1 to 18 verse 8, is addressed to disciples, to those who profess to follow Jesus. So these are words to those who follow Jesus. This is how we are to follow him. And if you look at these verses in 17.1 to 18.8, you notice that Jesus mentioned several key things about faith. And that's why we're, we're entitling this mini-series, Living by Faith. Uh, the, the notion of faith pops up several times in this passage. For example, in verse 6 of our text this morning, you know, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Verse 19, your faith has saved you. And then next week, we'll look at this verse in chapter 18, verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So today we're going to hear from the first 19 verses of chapter 17. What does it mean for us to live by faith in Christ? So just three points as we work our way through this text. Number one, living by faith means forsaking and forgiving sin. Now, how does Jesus begin his instruction to his disciples? You know, he starts by talking about sin. You know, I, I don't know whether you, you realize this, but Jesus is very realistic about life in the fallen world. You know, notice what he says in verse 1. Temptations to sin are sure to come. This is a sure thing. You know, if you, if you want something certain for 2021, is that you will face temptation to sin. And we will struggle with sin. That, that's a given, whichever year we're in. And then the word that Jesus uses, translated temptations in our Bibles, uh, is literally stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks are sure to come. So what are stumbling blocks? Basically, anything that entices us to fall into sin. Now, the, the, the term stumbling blocks is used in the Bible to refer to things like false teaching uh, or any words or actions that lead us astray. You know, friends, just think, of, think, think on this for a moment. Being a disciple of Jesus, following Jesus, doesn't make us immune to temptation and sin. So we can be honest with our struggles, right? Because none of us is immune to temptation and sin. In fact, I would put it to us that as followers of Jesus, we will struggle all the more because we understand, we grasp the sinfulness of sin. Now, this is an important point for us to start with, right? It's important for us to realize the struggle that is following Jesus. Otherwise, we may get discouraged by the difficulties of following Him. You know, friends, we, we should be scandalized by our own sin, but we shouldn't be surprised by our struggle. But Jesus warns us against being the cause or occasion 
for sin in someone else's life. We should not be putting stumbling blocks in the way of others. You know, his, his words are very strong in, in, this, in, this, in this passage. Right? Woe, as a pronouncement of judgment. Woe to the one through whom temptations come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Basically, those who put stumbling blocks in the way of other disciples will face the weight, the, the woe of God's judgment. I mean, these are sobering words, friends. So think, think again for, for a moment. You know, what effect are we having on the people around us? Right. Are, are we leading them towards Christ or away from them, away from Him? Right. Are we helping them to grow in holiness or are we actually putting stumbling blocks in the lives of others? What kind of impact are we having on the people around us? You know, perhaps people most dear to us. Right? You know, that's why people say sometimes it's hardest to love those who are nearest to you. Your parents, your, your children, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife. You know, what, what kind of impact are you having on them? You know, woe to the one through whom temptations come. You know, Jesus says it's better to die by drowning than to be guilty of leading someone else astray. You know, what, what, do, what do his words teach us? We're going to spend a bit of time just reflecting some more on his words here. What do his words teach us? I think firstly, they teach us that God is holy. And our holy God cares deeply about the holiness of his people. You know, I, hope, I hope you see this from these verses. He is a jealous God who will not hesitate to judge and take action to, to safeguard the purity of his people. You know, the, he views his people as precious, as, as valuable to him, and, and therefore he cares about the purity of his people. You know, I, I like the way Jesus refers to his disciples here. You notice that little term? Little ones. Little ones. It, it's a term of great affection. You know, it's like saying, my dear children. Anyone who causes my dear children to stumble, I will take action. These are the words of a gracious, loving parent. Now, we all know that a parent who doesn't protect his children from harm isn't loving. Right? You know, a parent who simply tells his children, yeah, you know, do what you want, you know, I, I don't really care, just, just go uh, enjoy yourselves, do what you want, you know, do whatever your, your whim takes you. you know, that, that's not love. Right? That, that's neglect. Here, we, we see God as a loving father who desires good for his children, his little ones. So as we read these verses about judgment, we need to realize that God's wrath against sin is not harsh, but it's actually an expression of his deep love for his people. And because God loves us, he hates the sin that harms us. Do we realize that? Because God loves us, 
He hates the sin that destroys our lives. So friends, a basic question for us as disciples is, whose side are we on? Do I take God's side against my sin? Or is it the other way around? Whose side are we on? So if our Heavenly Father is holy, then shouldn't His children resemble Him? You know, this is the reason why Jesus urges His disciples to pay attention to yourselves. He says that in verse 3. In other words, don't take sin lightly. None of us, regardless of how long we've been a Christian or how much we're involved in Christian ministry, is immune from falling. Now, recently, a famous Christian speaker with an influential international ministry was found guilty of sexual misconduct. And not just one-off sexual misconduct, but a pattern of sexual misconduct over many years. And he had kept it hidden, but the darkness of his double life began to come to light after his death. Friends, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. Are we cherishing secret sins in our lives? Things that we rather keep in the dark. Again, as we start a new year, I think this is an opportune time for us to do business with God. Are we allowing the light of God's Word to shine into every crack and crevice of our lives? You know, how is God calling us to repentance? Right, as, as we begin this new year, perhaps it's opportune time for us to say, enough. You know, I've spent enough time cherishing this secret sin. And God, I want to hand that over to you and I want to repent. I want to turn from that and I want to allow your word, the light of your word to shine into my life. And I pray that this is the day that we begin to follow Jesus in that way, to pursue holiness in this way. Pay attention to yourselves. And I think that verse reminds us that we can't do this alone. You know, yourselves, in verse 3, is plural, right? which means we are to fight sin together. Jesus is saying we, we need one another to help and encourage us as we grow in holiness. So this command you know, to pay attention to yourselves is a reminder to us to be open to receiving counsel or even rebuke from others. Right? These are challenging words for us, I realize. Right? Receiving tough words from someone else isn't easy, right? You know, how do we respond when, when someone else you know, points out the, the sin in our life? Do we respond with humility? Do we respond defensively? Right? And the spiritual well-being of others should matter to us as well. Now again, look at verse 3. You see how Jesus mentions your brother, right? If your brother sins, that, that's a statement that we are related to one another. Uh, that the person around me is not just a stranger, but he's a brother belonging to the same spiritual family. And Jesus is establishing 
this spiritual connection that we have with one another as the church of God. We are part of the same spiritual family with the same Father and therefore we have a mutual responsibility for one another. We love our brothers and sisters by seeking their spiritual good. That's what Jesus is calling us to, to live by faith, to care for the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters. So friends, avoidance or indifference is not loving. It's actually selfish. So ask ourselves, am I willing to bear with the, the discomfort and inconvenience of a difficult conversation with a brother or sister? in order to help that brother or sister follow Jesus? Am I willing to forego my own comfort in order to have that difficult conversation with someone to help that person to follow Jesus better? That's why Jesus says, if your brother sins, your brother, rebuke him. Not, not harshly, but out of love for him. You know, to obey what Jesus says, right? And, and this is a command, right? If your brother sins, rebuke him. It's a command. Right? We, we can't look at this and say, I won't do it. Right? That, that's disobedience. Right? So Jesus is calling us to do this as his disciples. And in order for us to do this, what, is it, what does it assume? It, it assumes that we are meaningfully committed to one another in a community of fellow disciples. That's the assumption that Jesus' words are making. Basically, we cannot be an isolated Christian. We cannot be cut off from community. Disciples need spiritual friendships with other disciples. Now, yes, I understand the Bible doesn't explicitly state you shall be a church member. It doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. I grant that. But friends, the truth about being significantly involved in the lives of other believers is found throughout Scripture. That's undeniable. And, and friends, this really is the heart of what being a church member is about. Being a member is not about having voting rights at church meetings. It's about mutual love and care. Care for one another. You know, a Christian without real community is in spiritual danger. As it says in Proverbs 18, verse 1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. You know, one of the things that I hope we realize over the course of the past year is that COVID-19 has underscored the importance of us being connected to one another especially given that we can't come together on Sundays in the same way as pre-COVID. It's become harder to remain connected to the community. And true, it's easier for us to drift away, to disconnect ourselves, to disengage from the lives of one another. And it's tempting to do so. Just as it's tempting for us to remain at home on Sundays and, and to continue just watching, being content to watch the service online and not desiring to gather again and to, to meet with God's people again. I understand some of us can't do that for health reasons, and that's completely understandable. But for those of us who can gather, then we ought to gather. 
we ought to take the effort to really see one another and to connect with one another. So how will we deepen our commitment to Christian community this year? You know, for some of us, it might be by joining a local church. For others, it might be by plugging into this church more, perhaps by regularly meeting with other believers in a, in a care group. But whatever it is for us, you know, what, what I want to really encourage us to think about this year is to meet up with at least one or two other church members during the week. You can meet up with someone else or a few other people, read the Bible with them, pray together. I, I think what, this, what these verses are calling us to is this commitment that we make to one another to know and be known by one another. To not live our lives in secret, cut off from one another, cut off from community. Jesus is calling us to speak the truth in love to one another and also to allow others to do the same for you. So Jesus commands us to call out sin in the community. That's what it means to live by faith. But, but this is important, to do so with love, mercy, and grace. You know, our aim isn't to put the other person down, but to build him or her up. That's why you look at what Jesus says in the rest of verse 3. If he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. Be generous with grace, not miserly with mercy. Don't be harsh and impatient with one another. Instead, love and forgive with patience and perseverance. You know, keep seeking each other's spiritual good. You know, Jesus says in verse 4, if, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Jesus is speaking of this persevering grace that should be evident in our lives with one another. And my friends, this is so hard to do. This is so hard to do. It's all too easy for us to get this wrong, right? either by rebuking in harsh, legalistic and self-righteous ways. I think some of us are guilty of that. Or, and some of us are guilty of this, by ignoring sin and not dealing with it at all, by avoidance and indifference. You know, how, how do we do these things well? How, how do we follow Jesus in what He says here? I think the apostles kind of grasp the, the weightiness of what, of what Jesus is saying, right? And therefore, you know, look, look at what they say next. The apostles say in verse 5, increase our faith. <laughs> increase our faith. They, they, they themselves realize this is so difficult to do, right? We need more faith, Jesus. Give us more faith so that we can do what you've just said in verses 1 to 4. You know, but notice how Jesus reframes their requests. They ask for more faith, but Jesus says to them, if you have faith, you can move trees into the sea. <laughs> you can do amazing things. So what matters, Jesus says, is not how much faith you have, but what really matters is whether you have faith or not. You know, let, let me give you this illustration. So two men you know, get on the same plane to take a flight. You know, that, that sounds very foreign to us now because I think none of us, very few of us have flown 
over the past 12 months. But here it is. Two men get on the same airplane to take a flight. One man, you know, he's a, he's a seasoned traveler. So he, he sits back, he relaxes, he, he really enjoys the flight. He's so accustomed to flying that this is no big deal for him. So he enjoys the flight. And the other, the other man, he's a first-time flyer. So as you can imagine, a first-time flyer is terribly nervous about getting on a plane. Right? But he does so, you know, he still gets on the plane, but he's nervous throughout the journey. He's a bit anxious, can't really enjoy the movie, can't really enjoy the meals. He's just pretty anxious throughout. Now the question is, who arrived at the destination? Who arrived? You know, both did. Right? Both arrived at the destination. Why? Because both had faith in the airplane. Right? They, they had faith enough to get onto the plane. They had faith enough that the, the journey would be safe, fundamentally. And they trusted that the plane was reliable. So even though one enjoyed the flight more than the other, what mattered was that they both trusted in the reliability of the pilot and the plane. And they both arrived at the destination. And, and this is what Jesus is getting at. It, it's not about how much faith you have, as if faith is some kind of mystical commodity. No, he's saying, if, if you have faith in me, if you trust me, if you depend on me, really depend on me, that's why it's about living by faith. Right? If you live by faith in me, you can tell this mulberry tree to be planted in the sea and it will obey you. Right? He's talking about doing amazing things because we trust in him. And, and the amazing thing that Jesus is talking about here in this context is forsaking and forgiving sin. If you trust in Jesus, rely on Him, you can forsake your sin. If you rely on Jesus, you can forgive the sins of others who sin against you. So instead of asking for more faith, Jesus says, trust me. Trust me. And what a wonderful thing to think about as we begin this new year, will we trust Him? Don't, don't just say, I need more faith, but fundamentally, will we trust Him? A little faith in an all-sufficient Saviour can do amazing things, can do wonderful things. So that was our first point. It was a bit longer, but let me move on to our next two points about what living by faith looks like. So point two, living by faith means humble service. This will take us through verse 7 to 10. Faith in Jesus means you know, depending on Him, not ourselves, right? as, as we've said. So this brings us to the next part of our passage where Jesus speaks of the attitude that we should have towards God. Right, Jesus says, beginning in verse 7, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? You know, will he rather not say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? You know, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? 
Right? So it's an illustration of the interaction between a master and his servant. And what, what's the point of Jesus' illustration? It basically is this. The, 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 the basic point is the master isn't obligated to his servant. Jesus is using a very uh, common image in this illustration to, to kind of make the point that the master is not obligated to his servant just because the servant has done what the master requires. I, I think we kind of understand that. You know, we know that if I show up for work on Monday, my boss isn't going to fall on his feet and thank me profusely because I'm there on a Monday morning. Right? Why? Why, why, isn't, why isn't my boss so grateful that I've showed up for work on Monday? Because I've simply done what was commanded. Right? I've simply done my due. You know, gratitude doesn't enter into it. Right? It's about me just fulfilling my duty. Right? So that's what Jesus is saying. The master isn't indebted to his servant simply because the servant has done what the master commanded. Right? And that's why Jesus makes the, the kind of summary statement in verse 10 of our text. He says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So Jesus is saying that that's the kind of attitude we should have towards God. Verse 10. We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Friends, God doesn't depend on us. We depend on Him. And we mustn't think that God owes us just because we have obeyed Him. We can't come to God with an attitude of entitlement. You know, I don't know whether you, rec you recall the, the older brother in the parable in Luke 15. You know, he thought it was unfair that his prodigal brother got a feast while he got nothing, even after years of service to his father. Right? You know, so he came to his father with an attitude of entitlement. Right? Father, you owe me this because I've served you. Now, friends, this is again a challenging point about discipleship for us to think about as we live by faith. How might we be thinking about God in this way? You know, this is very subtle, right? So I want us to really reflect and think about this because this is a subtle thing. Do we come to God with an attitude of entitlement, thinking that He owes us? Because, you know, I've been such a good Christian. I've showed up at church. I've done all the right things. God, you owe me. Do we think about God in this way? Are we disappointed? I'll be honest. You know, are we disappointed at God? Are we even outraged at God? because He's not given us what we want, although we've been so diligent in serving Him. You know, this, this is very common, friends. It's a subtle thing, but it's really common. Uh, a friend of mine turned away from the faith because there was pain and sorrow in his life, and therefore he was angry at God, angry that God didn't give him what he felt he deserved. Friends, if, if we think in this way, then we've actually bought into the so-called prosperity gospel. 
we feel entitled to good things just because we've done this or that for God. Now, pride demands our due, but humility recognizes that God is God and we are not. He is our Lord and we owe Him. We owe Him everything. You know, God made us to know Him for our good and His glory, but we've all turned away by serving ourselves instead of Him. And rather than listening to God, we've said and done what we think is right. And the Bible calls this rebellion sin. And because of this, we rightly deserve God's judgment against us. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God, being rich in mercy, He was the one who took the initiative. He was the one who reached out to us to save sinners like us. He sent His Son, Jesus, who bore God's judgment in the place of sinners so that we can be forgiven and brought back to Him. Friends, this, this is the heart of the gospel. This is why the gospel is such good news. The gospel is not a message of come and serve God, actually. The gospel is a message of how God serves us. Right? That, that's why it's such radically good news. And Jesus wants us to see that here in these verses. The gospel is a message where Jesus did not come to be served by us, but He came to serve sinners like us by laying down His life at the cross. You know, there, there is only one obedient servant throughout human history. Just one. Just one obedient servant. Not us, but the suffering servant. He was the one truly obedient servant. If there was one servant who was worthy, it was Jesus and because of his obedience, God raised him from the dead and exalted him. And, and now Jesus calls us to trust him, to depend on him. And we come humbly to him, not with a sense of entitlement or our own worthiness, but we come to him with a deep sense of our own unworthiness, acknowledging that we owe him everything, everything. And if Jesus died for us, then it is only right that we live for Him. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. You know, we serve Jesus only because He first served us. You know, we were the ones who foolishly sold ourselves into slavery, to sin and death. But Jesus, the obedient servant, has bought our freedom with His own blood. Therefore, He is worthy of our total devotion. You know, see, see how Jesus says in, in one of these, in, in the verse here, when you have done all that you were commanded, right? All that you were commanded. The first and greatest commandment is to love God 
with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So because Jesus has served us, how will we give Him our all this year? How will we serve Him humbly as those who were bought back from sin? And finally, point three, living by faith means grateful praise. Verses 11 to 19. Now in verses 11 to 19, we have uh, sort of a break in Jesus' teaching. And here we have a real-life example, an incident in the ministry of Jesus, an example of what living by faith looks like. You know, Luke tells us that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, verse 11, reminding us that He's going to the cross. This is His mission that He's come to fulfill. And traveling to Jerusalem from Galilee involves going through Samaria, in the north. And somewhere in this region, Luke doesn't really give us the specifics, but somewhere in this region, Jesus meets 10 lepers. And they stand at a distance because lepers had to quarantine themselves from other people. So while they are somewhat at a distance from Jesus, they, they cry out to him, right? They call out to him, hey, Jesus. Well, they don't say hey, but Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, Jesus, who is full of compassion, he hears them and he answers their request for physical healing. And he tells the lepers to go to the priest who will declare them clean. And sure enough, as they make their way to the priest, uh, all of them are healed. Very clear evidence of Jesus' mercy and power. He simply says the word and they are physically healed. But, but there's an interesting twist in the story, right? While all of the lepers were physically healed, only one, only one seems to grasp who Jesus truly is and what he has come to do. So this one man, he praises God by falling on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. You know, that, that's a really significant thing to say in verse 11. You see that he praises God, how? By falling at Jesus' feet. What does that say about Jesus? That He's God. You see, you see the equation in verse 11? He praises God by thanking Jesus. There's a clear statement of who Jesus is. And this man, I think he understands the significance of who Jesus is because he's doing that. And we know in Scripture that you, you only fall at the feet of someone when that person is divine. Right, you read about how people try to fall at Peter's feet and you say, don't do that. You, know, you read about how you know, John falls at the angel's feet and the angel tells him, don't do that. Right? But here, Jesus accepts his worship. Right? When this man falls at his feet, this man is clearly worshipping God by worshipping Jesus. So he realises that Jesus is not just an ordinary man, not just a miracle worker, not just a religious teacher, not just an earthly master, but Jesus is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. And then there's another surprising twist in the story. Who's this man? Jesus says, or the passage tells us, this man is a Samaritan of all people. A Samaritan. Presumably, the other nine lepers were Jews. And this is surprising because Jews look down on Samaritans whose religion was a mix of Judaism and other practices. The Jews regarded Samaritans as unclean 
half-breeds, religious or irreligious outsiders. So it is especially shocking that the only one, the only one who praises Jesus is an outcast, someone who doesn't belong. In fact, this man was an outcast twice over. Not only is he a Samaritan, but he's also a leper. It's a double whammy. And Jesus himself highlights this unexpected twist in the story. He says, we're not ten, lep- we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this, you know, this is what he uses, foreigner. Foreigner. You know, the word foreigner is the same word used on a sign in the Jerusalem temple. The Jerusalem temple had this sign that said, that warned foreigners to keep out of certain parts of the temple. The sign was very the sign was very strong. The sign said, if a foreigner is found beyond this point, the foreigner is responsible for his or her own death. Uh, not, not exactly a welcome to church kind of sign. So Jesus uses that term, right? How come this foreigner has come back to thank me? You know, this is a repeated theme in Luke's gospel. Religious insiders fail to have faith in Jesus, while supposed outsiders are the ones who draw near to Him. We mustn't think we're spiritually okay because we consider ourselves insiders, religious insiders or or good moral people, insiders. What really matters is whether we see Jesus for who He really is. What really matters is whether we trust Him. We see our need for him. Now this, friends, is true saving faith. This is true saving faith. We depend on Christ alone to save us from our sins. And we realize that our religious or moral accomplishments are but filthy rags. We bring nothing to Jesus except our sin, our guilt, and our brokenness. And he is our only hope. Will we live 2021 as though Jesus was our only hope? You know, this Samaritan leper trusted in Jesus for salvation. And Jesus says to him, Rise, go your way. Your faith has saved you. I think that's a better translation than the ESV's translation. The word literally is saved. Your faith has saved you. Which tells us the other nine lepers were physically healed but Jesus actually doesn't say anything about them being saved. Friends, Jesus didn't come to improve our circumstances or to make our lives more convenient and comfortable. Jesus didn't come for that. He came to die on the cross to rescue us from our sin. Jesus doesn't promise us a more comfortable 2021. He is not obligated to do so. Jesus doesn't promise us that 2021 will be easier than 2020. He's not obligated to do that. Jesus doesn't promise us a year free from suffering or affliction or loss or pain or sorrow. He is under no obligation to do that. But He has come to save us. He has come to give us life, true life. And He has come to accomplish what we could never do for ourselves, 
which is the forgiveness of our sins, and to bring us back to God, to enjoy Him forever. Have we trusted in Jesus for who He is and because of what He came to do? Will we offer up our lives to Him this year, a life of continual, grateful praise to Him because we understand what it means to be a sinner saved by grace? True saving faith isn't something that we merely tack onto our lives as one more thing among many. Living by faith, friends, involves a fundamental reorientation and reordering of our lives. It means living for Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. It means forsaking and forgiving sin. It means humble service and grateful praise. So friends, as we end, let's end by thinking about these things. Instead of trying to make Jesus fit into our plans for 2021, how about making Him the absolute centre of our lives and making all our plans revolve around Him? 2020 may have been our annus horribilis. Things may get better this year or things may not. But regardless of how this year turns out, how will we live by faith in Jesus? Friends, let's go to Him and pray. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank You indeed for Your Son. We thank You for Your grace and mercy in giving us Your Son, not because we deserve Him, not because we are worthy servants, that have earned the right for us to come before you. But Father, we come to you as unworthy servants, acknowledging that all that we have, we owe to you. All that we are, all that we have, we trust you and we depend on Jesus for them. And so Father, as we come to you on this first weekend of the year, we pray that you would search our hearts, help us to turn away from any sin that causes us to stumble, Help us, Father, to pursue holiness as your beloved children because you have made us holy through your Son. And Father, we pray that you would stir in our hearts faith, that we would trust you, that we would not give in to fear as we consider the uncertain circumstances of this year. But Father, we pray that you would turn, faith, uh, you would turn fear into faith that we would look to you and look to your Son and truly find rest in you for our weary souls. So Father, we give ourselves to you afresh. We pray that you work by your Spirit in us to trust you and to live by faith in Jesus, whom you have sent for us and for our salvation. We pray this for his glory. Exalt him, Father, we pray in our midst, in our lives. We ask this in his name. Amen.